Thanks, Rob, and uh, good evening, everyone. Um, uh, my name is Jonathan Mason. I'm uh, a member of the uh, team that helps uh, and supports Richard with um, uh, leading services and with preaching. I feel a bit of a cheat this evening because I'm not a student. Uh, do I look like a student? <laughs> uh, and this is a student-led service. Uh, I have been a student, both at City College Knowledge at Norwich and at the UEA. Uh, that was um, uh, the middle of the last century. Uh, uh, but I've, I've spent most of my working life around students um, as a teacher of uh, student nurses, uh, firstly with, uh, in the NHS and then uh, more lastly at the UEA. Um, I don't have time for that anymore. I'm retired because with two grandchildren. Uh, I've joined that clan of retired people and I thought I'd never be the person to say, I don't know how, how I've ever found time to go to work, but I've joined that clan. Uh, anyway, I hope that from young uh, to old, we are all students uh, of God's word, and it's to that that we will return uh, to look together at the passage that Rob read for us. It's uh, Luke chapter 4, and uh, beginning at verse 31, page 1031, in the church Bible, it would be good to have it open in front of you. Um, at first sight, it looks like a fairly ordinary plan for the day. Um, church, half past nine. Uh, then out for lunch at Simon and Miriam's. I'm, I'm guessing at her name, by the way. Uh, and then uh, stay at their house, and there'll be open house uh, uh, from half past six, sort of sunset onwards, when uh, anybody can come and um, uh, join the party, as it were. Uh, simple uh, diary, simple plan, uh, except that it's the plan of Jesus and things don't stay simple. Things start to happen when Jesus uh, does, uh, is around. And another way in which this is not a simple, a straight, quite straightforward plan for the day is that I think that Luke, in giving to us this day in the life of Jesus, that begins, well, actually not in church, but in synagogue, and then in Simon's house, that Simon who was to become Peter, the disciple, um, and then lots of people coming for Jesus to help them in the evening. Um, I think that Luke wants us to regard this as something of a typical day in the life. If you were here last Sunday evening, then we spoke, uh, looked at, together at the previous uh, section in Luke chapter 4, where I described verses, excuse me, 18 and 19 as being something like Jesus' mission statement. This is what I've come for, this is what I've come to do. I've come with good news, and I've come with good news for needy people. And uh, it seems to me that Luke is now giving us this day's worth of activity to illustrate Jesus' mission in action. We've got the mission statement, and now we've got Jesus' mission in action. We've got Jesus' mission setting forth, progressing forward, being propelled forward. So, whoops, 
Uh, That's the passage then, Luke 4, verses 31 to 44, in this series on the early chapters of Luke's Gospel under the heading of See the Coming King. Now, as I looked at this passage and studied it, there was something in particular, apart from the events that happen, morning, midday, and evening, something about those events that I started, that started to really hit me between the eyes. If I can just get my slide to progress. Can you help me? Thank you, Richard. Thank you. Um, there are just some of the words and phrases from the passage itself. And it seems to me that so much of this, what really hit me between the eyes, is the idea of Jesus' authority. You just see it in the language being used. Jesus is speaking and acting with authority. And so I thought that what I'd do this evening is to um, see if we can sort of organize these thoughts a little bit in what we fondly call our minds and, um, and see Jesus' authority in action and see then how we might be expected to respond to this, author- this amazing, astonishing authority that Jesus demonstrates So the first thing I see in this passage is the authority of Jesus' words. Uh, And one of the unusual things for Jesus as a teacher is that even though he would be in some respects a a, a typical Jewish rabbi going around with a band of disciples uh, teaching and preaching, he wasn't like any of the other rabbis. The other rabbis uh, prided themselves on saying nothing that was original. They would say things like this. Well, Rabbi Ben Isaac says this, and Rabbi Abraham says something else, and just give you the tradition. And Jesus never does that. Jesus speaks on his own authority as an expert on God. He has the utmost regard for God's word, the Old Testament scriptures. But he still sets himself up as an authority Again, if you were here last Sunday evening, I tried to point out and emphasize just how self-centered Jesus' teaching was. And you know, if, if it weren't valid, if it weren't, if it weren't right, then it, it, it would be crazy for him to be going me, me, me all the time. But he is in his teaching. Compassionate, kind, outward-looking, uh, empathetic, all those things. Yes, he was. But in his teaching, he was saying, you need to understand who I am and what I've come for. And now it is with his teaching here. The people were amazed at his teaching because his message or his words had authority. Ponder for a moment. It's not, I think, always recognized that words, just as a general truth, as a general fact, often have great authority. Uh, People who are in the know about these things sometimes talk about speech acts the ability to, of words, both spoken and written, to accomplish things like promises or contracts or a judge pronouncing a, verd- a verdict or pronouncing a sentence or like Jesus pronouncing forgiveness of sins. There, in all those cases, the words are being used to accomplish something. Uh, I don't know, perhaps you can tell me, (laughs) whether children at school still um, uh, sing to each other the little rhyme, 
uh, when they're a little bit upset. Um, Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never, help, uh, can never hurt me. Do, they, do people still, do children still sing that to each other? It's not true. It is not true. The truth is, sticks and stones can break my bones, and words can break my heart. Words are powerful things. And by the way, uh, young people especially, don't let anybody tell you that a marriage contract is just a piece of paper with words on it. Next time, or rather, next time somebody tells you that, marriage certificate, don't need that, just a piece of paper. And next time somebody says that to you, ask them, ask that person for a 50 pound note that belongs to them, set fire to it. Can you still set fire to these plastic notes? <laughs> well, try it anyway. And then say, don't worry, it's just a piece of paper, just a piece of plastic. Now, words spoken and written are important. They can do things. And actually, all the way through this passage, Jesus is doing things with his words. He is speaking, and things happen. He speaks with authority, not only because his teaching is original, and because it's confident, and because it's imaginative, and because he uses wonderful illustrations, and because he adapts his teaching wonderfully to his hearers, but because his teaching does things. There's authority in his words, as the crowds recognized. But secondly, Jesus has authority over demons. Did you hear, did you listen to that part of the story? Um, uh, twice, once uh, towards the end of the passage, in general, people were, uh, who, uh, who um, were demonized were being brought to him, and he delivered them from the demons. But then the specific example in the synagogue, in verses uh, 33 and following. And again, there's this note of authority. With authority and power, the crowd say, He commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. Now, I don't know what you think about demons and so on, uh, so I just want us to get our notebooks out for a moment and just jot down a few things that this passage, passage says about demons. Okay, just to spend just a few moments on it and get into a little bit of detail here. So demons in verses 33 to 35, what do we learn about them? First of all, their reality. It is sometimes supposed that ancient people, New Testament Testament times, couldn't tell the difference between disease and demonization. But they could. Luke, being a a physician, uh, is careful to make that distinction. So, for example, in verse 40, a little bit later on, they brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, and then he says, verse 41, moreover, demons came out. He's distinguishing between those who had diseases and those who had demons. Sometimes there's an overlap. Sometimes the symptoms of demonization manifest themselves in, um, in, in symptoms that look like disease, but there is a difference. Um, from this passage... The difference is twofold. Diseases don't talk to you. But the demon here talks to Jesus. 
and ask the question, what do you want? <laughs> do you want to destroy us? And the other thing that, that diseases don't have is supernatural knowledge. And this demon has supernatural... He knows better than human beings are who Jesus is. We'll come to that in a moment. So their reality, their strategy, the man who had a demon was in the synagogue. Now, I don't know this, bit of guesswork here, but I wonder whether he was a regular attender in the synagogue and just sat there quite quietly. But when Jesus comes along and starts teaching powerfully, it provokes the demon. And the man becomes visibly demonized and there is this struggle between the demon and between Jesus. And, of course, we know who wins the struggle. It seems to me that reading from from the the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, um, there is a a clustering of demons and demonization in the Gospels when Jesus is here, as though the devil, Satan, marshals all his forces to try to stop Jesus in his tracks if he can. There's some reference to demonization in the Acts and so on, but there's a, a concentration in the Gospels. I believe it's the same in Christian history. When the gospel of Christ, the good news of Christ, is going forward, especially in pioneering areas um, of, of the world, with the power of the Holy Spirit, then demons are particularly provoked. And there is this conflict. But again, we know who the winner will be. The knowledge of this demon... He calls Jesus the Holy One of God. He has a, I mean, it's ironic that the demon knows better than all the human beings around Jesus who Jesus is. It will take Simon Peter, who's there at the time, by the way, it's his house, it will take Simon Peter until they get to Caesarea Philippi in chapter 9 of Luke's Gospel to come up with his confession of who Jesus is. It gets pretty near to the close, but not uh, uh, nearly close to the answer, uh, but uh, but the demon knows now. The demon has supernatural knowledge. But mark this too, it does the demon no good at all. (laughs) Somebody once said this, the devil is a better theologian than any of us, but he's still a devil. Mere knowledge about Jesus does no good at all without faith and hope and love. Jesus silences the demon. Notice the authority again. He says, be quiet. Now, are you a bit surprised that the demon has acknowledged who Jesus is and Jesus says to the demon, be quiet. Jesus will not allow a demon to testify to him I think partly because he will not allow people to think that he and demons are in league with one another. And that's precisely what happens in chapter 11, when Jesus is accused of being in league with Beelzebub, the prince of demons, because of his power over demons. Jesus will not allow that for a moment that their knowledge and their insight to be uh, construed as 
they're on speaking terms with Jesus, must be fairly close. There's another reason, I think, why Jesus tends to, at this stage of his ministry, quieten down those who want to get to the heart of who he is. Because it won't really be revealed until later, until Jesus comes to that place called Calvary. Then we will know more fully and more perfectly who he really is and what kind of king he really is. Demons are destructive. They are not your friends. <laughs> they don't want to be your friends. When the, the demon sees he can do more, no more with this poor man, he just throws him away, and the poor man falls to the ground. But he falls to the ground unharmed, because Jesus has authority over demons. And so the, the demon came out of the man without injuring him. So a few details, I think, emerging from this passage about, uh, about demonization uh, and, and about demons. But the key thing is we don't need to be scared of supernatural forces because Jesus has authority. Thirdly, Jesus shows his authority over disease. Um, after synagogue, uh, Jesus goes into uh, Simon, uh, Simon's house and there, Simon's mother-in-law is ill. Our translation says that she has a high fever. Now, Luke is a, was a physician, and the Greek physicians used to talk about two kinds of fever, um, great fevers and small fevers, uh, mega fevers and micro fevers. Luke gives this one the proper name. He calls it a mega fever. She is seriously ill possibly on the point of death, I don't know, but she's seriously ill. Note that, please. Note, too, that when Jesus um, uh, 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 stands over her and uh, rebukes the disease, that's the only time in the Gospels he actually <laughs> rebukes a disease, um, uh, she is restored completely and instantaneously to health. And that's like pretty much all of Jesus' healing miracles, they are all complete, and I think all bar one, instantaneous. But the question is this, what kind of person can rebuke a disease? Ponder it for a moment. What kind of person can rebuke a disease, has authority over disease? Surely, the kind of person who made the human body in the first place and who has control over all its workings, all its circumstances. Uh, he has that authority. We read another part of the Bible that uh, through him, through Christ, all things were made. And without him was not anything made that was made. He has authority over her body and over yours too. And now th uh, fourthly, we read, I think, in this passage of the authority of Jesus' mission. Verses 42 and 44 in particular. Note in these verses uh, what Jesus says about his method. He says, I must preach. Once again, the word, the word. There is a story that is told 
I think it's apocryphal. I hope it's apocryphal. The story told concerning uh, St. Francis of Assisi, who is said to have uh, said, uh, said to his followers, preach the gospel using words if necessary. To which I once heard the riposte of somebody who had said they would like to throttle St. Francis using hands if necessary. <laughs> Well, we wouldn't want to do harm uh, a fellow brother in Christ, but you can see the point. Uh, the gospel comes as a proclamation. Jesus came uh, to Capernaum teaching, preaching, and he leaves Capernaum to take his teaching and his preaching somewhere else. He comes and he goes teaching and preaching. Works by themselves are absolutely essential for Jesus and for Jesus' followers. Our words would be empty without deeds of goodness, kindness, truthfulness, and honesty, and fairness, and and so on. But the gospel is not communicated by deeds alone. The gospel is a word to be proclaimed and explained. His method is to preach. The content of his message summarizes the good news of the kingdom of God. God has in a new way, according to Jesus, visited this planet and nothing will be the same again. As God, through the work of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, pushes back the boundaries of sin and evil, Satan and uh, and demons' domain and establishes his people that he calls the church as, uh, as, as his new society, his new community. And so back to mission again. This, he says, is why I was sent. There's power in those words. I was sent. What's he getting at? Just a sense of inner compulsion? No, he has been sent by his father. Uh, Scholars sometimes call this kind of statement, coming as it does in Luke's gospel, a bolt from the Johannine blue. Because the kind of thing you expect to find and do find a lot of in John's gospel, statements about Jesus coming from heaven to do God's will. But it crops up from time to time in the other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And when it does, it kind of brings you up with a, with, with a, with, with a start. That even in those gospels, Jesus is aware of his mission, where he has come from, who has sent him, and what he's here for. A sense of mission. But again, I want to emphasize to you, if I, if, if I may, that the whole thing is going forward. When you read the Gospel of Luke, it's not just a collection of stories and events. It has a, it, it has a storyline, what is something called a melodic line uh, to it. Um, and so Jesus is with his mission going somewhere. And we'll find that out in chapter 9 where having received uh, Simon Peter's uh, confession of who Jesus is as the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus sets his face flint-like towards Jerusalem. And from then on, Luke's gospel is a story of his journey to Jerusalem and to persecution, hatred, and death on a cross. And that surprise of all surprises, shock of all shocks, is where his authority rests and lays. The kind of authority we've just just been looking at in chapter 4, excuse me, 
we've talked about the authority of Jesus' words. And the cross of Christ is a message from God to us. The Apostle Paul uh, calls it the word, the message of the cross. The cross speaks to us of the grace and the goodness and the love and the mercy of God. Christ doing on the cross for us what we could never do for ourselves. We've talked about um, Jesus' uh, uh, dominion, Jesus' authority over demons. And uh, Paul, in one of his letters, the letter to Colossians, says that on the cross, uh, these powers, these, uh, these supernatural, these evil powers were, were disarmed. And a public spectacle was made of them. We talked about Jesus' power to heal Simon's uh, mother-in-law. And that same Peter, that same Simon Peter in his first epistle, quotes a verse from the Old Testament from Isaiah chapter 53. And speaking of the cross of Christ, says, by his wounds, you have been healed. And the curious thing is in that passage, he's not talking about healing of the body at all. He's talking about the kind of well, inner well-being that comes from sins forgiven, that comes from peace with God, that comes from an inner strength that permits us to, uh, to suffer with joy even under persecution and a freedom to live lives that are righteous before God. That's what Peter, St. Peter is talking about when he talks about uh, Jesus' wounds uh, healing us. There are other things that could be said about healing and so on, but that's what Peter has to say uh, there when referring back to the cross. And then we talked about Jesus' uh, mission. And on the cross, it's mission accomplished. The night before Jesus died, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and prayed, amongst other things, Father, I have completed the work that you gave me to do. And then as he hung on the cross, he shouted out, it is finished, which is not a sigh of resignation. It's a cry of triumph. You see these Olympic uh, uh, athletes, um, you know, landing that jump on their feet, <laughs> coming down that, that, that bobsleigh head first and getting the winning time and so on. And as they, as they know they've, uh, they've passed the line, they've landed the jump, they've got the top marks, there's that punch in the air, accomplished, I did it. And that's what Jesus is saying from the very cross. His mission is complete. There's more to happen. Uh, he'll rise from the dead. He, will, he, he now reigns victorious. He will, as if you're in church this morning, reminder from Richard, he will come again in glory. But it focuses on the cross. That's where his authority rests. Without the cross, we have no gospel. We do have a question, though. What, do you, what, do you, what is to be done with legitimate authority? What do you do with legit, legitimate authority? Well, surely, the only thing to do with legitimate authority is to submit to it. Will we, will you, will I submit to Jesus' authority tonight? We recognize that his authority is a good, a wise, and a loving authority. 
The gospel is not only an invitation, it is that, but it's also a command not to be trifled with. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you believe that he is the Christ, God's anointed one, the Messiah, the one who'd been longed for and promised and predicted for centuries before he came? The hopes of so many uh, found their fulfillment in him. The hope of the world found its fulfillment in him. Will you believe, will you trust in him as Jesus? Jesus is a word meaning saviour. You will call his name Jesus, says the angel, because he will save his people from their sins. Will you trust in him as saviour? To lift that burden of sin and guilt and it need never trouble you anymore. And will you submit to him? Will you obey him as your Lord? As King of kings and Lord of lords, above which there is no higher authority. Will he be our, my Lord and your Lord? Will he be Lord in this church and yes, even in this country because our rulers and governors and politicians are accountable to Jesus as Lord whether they acknowledge it or not? Will you accept and follow Jesus as Christ and Lord? I pray in his name that we all would. Um, he, uh, he offers himself on those terms as a wonderful saviour, a wonderful Christ, and a wonderful Lord. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we may not think that we like authority, that we like being told what to do, And we know that there are many tyrants around who would abuse us simply because of the authority they have over us. But we know and understand yours to be a wise and good and loving authority. And we would now gladly and humbly bow the knee before you and make you our own, our own Christ, our own Saviour, our own Lord to love you and to live for you in the power of your Holy Spirit all of our days. Amen.